Hello and welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Natalie May. And today we go to... Oh, actually, before we start, Natalie, is it okay? Do you remember that lady that you saw last week, Saturday night, the lady with the chest pain? Oh, there were a lot of those. Oh, you know, Mrs Megan, she's a really nice lady. She, um, she sings in the choir on Sunday. She's the organist. She... She looks after the orphans. Oh yeah, she used to work for. Oh, she used to work for that charity. Yeah. Anyway, she's dead. What? Oh, sorry. Um, I just wanted to give you some feedback on some cases that you'd seen, and unfortunately, uh, she didn't do so well. So I thought we'd um, have a chat later on and, and talk it through. Is that okay? Well, I can't really hear anything now over the sound of my palpitations. Uh, you've got a couple of patients to see. So when you finish with the patients you're looking after at the moment, you just bob around the back office, and we'll um, we'll go through it if that's all right. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, mm. so what we're going to be talking about today is how to approach some really difficult conversations that you sometimes have in the ED when you have to, you have some news about a patient which may have not gone terribly well, or it may be an interpersonal interaction that's not gone well, but you have to approach one of your colleagues and give them what's essentially bad news. And we talk a lot about giving bad news to patients, but we don't necessarily explore how we give bad news to colleagues. Now, clearly, that example wasn't a good one, Natalie. Are you still feeling okay? Yeah, I'm just going to take a moment, have a cup of tea and get, get myself together. Good, good. Because it's important. I think that we have talked about this a lot over the years. And this podcast is really going to explore some of the thoughts and ideas that we've had. I think it's fair to say we don't have a final conclusion on what the best way to approach this is, do we? No, we've been talking for absolutely ages about putting something like this together. And we've had face to face conversations about how you start that conversation process. And I still don't think that there's a nice formulaic answer that you can nail down in a mnemonic to make it perfect and brilliant every single time. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. Than that. And that's, that's probably because it involves human emotions. OK, but there's no doubt that if you work in emergency medicine, there will be occasions when things don't go terribly well. And particularly if you're a trainer or you're a more senior person in the ED, you'll receive information about a patient outcome or there may be a problem in the department. It might be interdepartmental or intradepartmental interactions where you're going to have to go and have a chat to somebody about a difficult conversation that's probably going to make them feel uncomfortable or make them challenge something about their personal abilities. And you know that's going to be difficult. So how do we approach that kind of conversation? So some information has come in. So a typical example would be somebody has had an adverse clinical event. How are we going to communicate that to a junior doctor? So I think the first tip that you and I came up with was that actually, if that's the first time you're going to go and have a conversation with that junior doctor about the way that they practice, the way that they think and the way they approach patient care, there's maybe some work that should have been done in, in the first instance. So hopefully, unless it's the very first day that doctor's working in the department, you've already established a relationship with that doctor as a, as a trainer and a trainee. And we think that that relationship should include regular conversations of this nature, not just about patients that have gone wrong, but patients that have gone well, patients that have been particularly interesting or particularly difficult to look after. And having that culture in your department where you are regularly sharing the challenges of emergency medicine, which at the end of the day is a really tricky and complicated job. And I still wonder, my imposter syndrome kicks in, I still wonder how I don't get in trouble a lot more. I think having that culture can be the first step towards making these interactions easier. If your trainees know that having those conversations is part of the fabric of the department that you work in, then that's going to reduce some of the fear that they have about 
being in trouble, having got things wrong. What are the consequences for me and my career? Oh my God, am I going to be struck off? That kind of thing that immediately goes through your head. And of course, what on earth has happened to that patient? I've caused someone harm because at the end of the day, none of us is in this job, I hope, uh, intentionally causing harm to patients. Yeah, so you've always got like a bell curve of activity, haven't you? So most of our practice will be around the satisfactory area of, of practice. There'll be some cases where you're absolutely awesome and you do fantastic things. And obviously giving feedback on those is important. And there'll be some cases where you don't do as well as you should have done. But those extremes are, they are extremes. And if only your feedback is related to them, I worry that you'll probably only get, well, you won't get much feedback for starters. But secondly, it'll be balanced, won't it? So you'll see half of your feedback will be about excellence, half of your feedback will be about not so good stuff. That's a 50-50 mix. And from a perception point of view, people will probably remember the negative feedback more than the positive. So they may have an impression that they don't get balanced feedback in the department. That's not good for the mental health. It's not good for them learning. It's not good for the department. So you definitely need to think about regular feedback. So, so how do you do that? Well, we have both advocated in the past this open diary approach with trainees. And that, that means that essentially the trainee is encouraged to make appointments through your secretary or if, if you're me and you like to read your emails every moment of every day, uh, just drop me a line and I can tell you when you can come and have a chat with me. I've always got tea bags in my office. I've got mugs. And the whole point of that is that we can have those conversations regularly. You can come and talk to me about anything you like. But more than that, I'd encourage you to bring interesting patients to talk to me about and I'd be more concerned about trainees that aren't coming and taking up those opportunities who think that they have got emergency medicine down because they're the ones who probably haven't. Yeah I agree and I actually don't do it on a basis of if you want to make an appointment come and see me. I do it on the basis that you are required to make regular appointments with my secretary to come and see me so that we have regular opportunities and regular set settings and regular times to go through portfolios go through what they're learning talk about cases and that's an opportunity that if you do have to give feedback there's a time when it's it's kind of expected so if you if you've got to talk about a case where something didn't go terribly well that is an opportunity where you can do it and talk about the good things as well but it doesn't mean it has to be out of the blue it's, it's a horrible experience where somebody and i'm sure you've seen people do it or so maybe somebody's done it to you you're in research, you've got three cases on the go and somebody comes in and says, uh, I just need you to pop into the back office to talk about this patient. And I'm not sure that's good for anybody, including the patients who are currently in the department, because it's incredibly distracting. Absolutely. The worst thing that can possibly say is, uh, I just need to have a word with you. But don't worry, just finish what you're doing. Well, there's no hope at all of me doing any good job doing what I'm doing, because now all I'm thinking about is, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen when I walk through that door? Have I done something terrible? Yeah, it was. I can't remember who said it now. Was it uh, one of the other podcasts who said there's a magic three little words? I think it's Lauren Westerfers talked about those three little words. Do you remember? Do yes. you remember Mrs. So-and-so? Yeah, it's more effective than adenosine at stopping the heart of any emergency physician. And I think we need to move away from that. Now, clearly there will be times when you do have to have an urgent conversation with somebody and they may be present. And those can be very difficult. But again, if you're in a working in an environment where people are regularly discussing cases, there's not going to be the presumption that it's going to be an adverse outcome. And do you remember when I tried that sort of crazy experiment where I used to go around and ask everybody every day, um, 
can we just talk about a patient? So that it was a, a desensitization exercise. So I figured if we asked enough people often enough, do you remember that patient? They would stop getting worried about it. I can tell you it wasn't a great experiment. It doesn't work. I guess you have to ask a thousand people a million times before you desensitize. It's so ingrained in our practice. So don't go around doing that, folks. Um, I've tried it. It doesn't work. No, don't do that. The fact remains that getting the person at the exact time that you find out about the adverse outcome that's occurred is not always the best way of approaching that. So it may not be that you need to immediately go and drag that person off the shop floor and and prevent them from seeing any other, other patients for the next 10 minutes while you dispatch that particular nugget of information to them. Many of these things can actually wait and there's definitely a case for not presenting them when they're on a clinical shift so if i think from my experience if that's come at the beginning of a shift that person's going to be distracted for the rest of the shift if it comes at the end of the shift that's all they're going to be thinking about when they go home so actually doing it in real real time kind of away from the clinical responsibilities that that person has assuming that it can wait which most of these things can sometimes gives a little bit more time and space and and cognitive space as well to process that information and to allow whatever reaction that person needs to have the hot potato idea that i have is that if i'm given some really interesting news i kind of want to get rid of it and by sharing it or having that difficult conversation it's very convenient to me to get it off my chest and to move it on but that's not fair and i think when you're giving this sort of information you have to be cognizant that you're trying to do the best for the person receiving it because it's tougher than them than you is for the person who's delivering it so i think you're absolutely right finding the right time which is based on what you think the trainee will perceive as a good time is important only problem with that is sometimes news leaks out Yes, it does. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the interaction that you have is going to be particularly negative necessarily. So trainees already know that something hasn't gone well. And that may be from their colleagues, their their F2 colleagues who are working in cardiology and have said, oh, do you remember you sent that patient up to the ward? Yeah, they died 10 minutes later. Or hospitals are rife places for gossip. And so People do tend to know exactly what's going on, if particularly if it's bad news. That doesn't mean that those conversations don't need to happen. You probably do still need to allow a bit of debriefing space then, and it becomes a slightly different focus, I would say. That can allow for some organic conversations to have already occurred. So I will sometimes find myself in a situation where I'm talking to a trainee about something completely different and they'll just suddenly start to tell me about a case that didn't go very well and how they've been feeling about it. And that's a really, I take that as a compliment for me that, somebody thinks that they can come and bring me those things and we're able to go through a process of, of debriefing of breaking it down and looking at the cognitive processes and what how things could be managed differently what where the errors were where the biases were and bringing that kind of higher level thinking in at a time that the person has decided is a good time to, for them because they've started to have that conversation and that may already have happened before your trainee comes to you so at some point you're going to get your colleague into a space and a time where you're going to have a conversation about something which has not gone terribly well. How do you approach that? Do we just use a, a breaking bad news formula? I'll be honest, I've definitely been in that position where somebody's had to tell me that something hasn't hasn't gone very well. And I, I think it's probably fair to say that you have as well. Oh, yeah. Have more than once? Let's not go there. It's not a nice feeling. And the, the fact remains that no matter what somebody says, you, you tend to be a fairly smart individual when you're working as a doctor and you get a clue. It's rarely going to come out of the blue. And that brings in a lot of what Liz and Ian were talking about in their podcast about breaking bad news to patients, which is that once you've clocked onto the fact that something is going to happen that or you've done something wrong, there's really very little dressing up that anyone can do the bottom line is something has not gone as well as you'd hoped or something has gone wrong or you've made a mistake and 
that's what you're going to take away from that situation. And probably we just need to man up to that fact, recognise that the feedback we're giving isn't about us as trainers. We're, we're trying to give that person what they need and to allow them the space to have an emotional response to that and maybe not be too frightened of it. I think we also need to recognise that there is a journey that people take when they receive bad news that is, is reasonably well laid out. And in some of the lectures we did at SMAC, we talked about the response to an adverse event. So initially a chaotic feeling of what went wrong, then going through almost like a blame cycle through to acceptance and then finality. And depending on the level of the event, that can take days, weeks, months, even years on some occasions. And so there is a predictability that when people do receive bad news, that a range of emotions are likely to take place in them. And I think if you are a trainer, you should be aware of that. And you can perhaps guide people through what they might be experiencing at the time, but also over the next few days and weeks, because it is a process of, of coming to terms with a piece of information. So is this, this isn't going to be a one event, is it? Oh, by the way, we did this. Here's the thing. Write a statement. Off you go. Never talk about it again. I think this needs to be revisited, doesn't it? Absolutely. Exactly. As Liz said about breaking bad news, it's not a drop the bomb. Phew, thank goodness this isn't my problem anymore. Now it's yours. Bye. I'm off. It's starting, uh, hopefully, a relationship with that person to support them and guide them through their emotional process and their dealing with whatever's happened. And hopefully coming out at the end, a stronger person, a better doctor, a more reflective learner, whatever it is that they need to have at the end of it. So it's about making sure that you schedule in some follow up time. So say, well, you know, we, the, the conversation's finished for today. Let's meet tomorrow. Let's meet in a week. Let's meet in two weeks, whatever it is that that person needs. And also that there is some availability and support in the interim period. So that might be if you need to see me or get in touch with me before then. And I think although it will be uncomfortable for some people, it's, it is appropriate to, to gently ask about issues such as sleep, about how they're getting on in general, whether they're rested, whether they have intrusive thoughts, because those can be clues to people who aren't recovering well, who may need additional help in the future. And this is something I've, I've learned over the years, I think. And I, I, I was very much a fan of the drop the bomb run away in the early days. I think I did many things badly in my youth. And I think now that I've gone back to people on a regular basis and inquired, it's not unusual at all for people to describe sleep disturbance, to have some intrusive thoughts, to have ruminations going on, particularly in those early days. And I think if you can talk to people and tell them that that's normal, explore those thoughts because people will often create some really crazy ideas about what happened or what's going to happen and you can explore those with somebody then I think it's very helpful it's not uncommon for people to make what I would consider to be relatively minor mistakes with with little or no patient harm and to get it into their head particularly when they're young that they're going to be struck off and, and thrown out of medicine which is just not going to happen with that degree of, of incident ever but unless you give people the time to explore that and explain it they could go away with that feeling for, for, for many weeks or months. In some ways, having that visceral response to this news is encouraging because it reinforces the idea that we're not causing patient harm intentionally. We want to be better. We don't want to be doctors that screw things up all the time. It's almost more concerning when the response is, well that you know I didn't do that or that was someone else's fault we're encouraged if we see our trainees taking responsibility for those mistakes but it's important that that doesn't become a completely negative influence it has to be something that the something positive can come out of ideally it's helpful for us to talk that through I think and give people opportunities to explore the way that they're feeling about it as well as the the way that they've acted in the past and the way that they're going to act in future but that's individual learning, isn't it? So how do we translate that individual learning? Because anybody who's involved in any incident will clearly 
learn from it in some but error is a really powerful tool for learning there's lots of lots of reports in the uk certainly national reports that would say that we should really embrace anything that's gone wrong so how do we go about sharing an incident while still protecting individuals because you don't want to go into the sort of culture where it's a name and shame culture you'll never believe what natalie may did last week let's all learn from her terrible error that's not going to be a good idea for anybody how do you do it so that there's institutional learning whilst protecting the individuals so one of the best examples I've come across recently is in the department that I'm working in at the moment, where we have a monthly clinical governance meeting, which is almost exclusively case-based learning. Trainees and nursing staff and consultants are encouraged to bring cases that they've been involved with, where things have maybe been an error in diagnostic process, or there's been a variety often of small things that have added up and the patient hasn't had the care that we hope we can deliver every time. Um, And we know that that's a a part of our medical life. We're humans, we get things wrong, there are lots of process problems, but it's really important for us in terms of understanding the processes within our departments and our hospitals to, to really expose those processes. But it's also healthy as a group to be there in a room together discussing it openly and with a non-critical atmosphere, purely with the the intention of us all learning and recognising how we can change our thinking about a particular situation. That's almost like the Chatham House rule, isn't it? So that you discuss a case, it's anonymised, but you don't attribute it to an individual. We discuss this and this is what came out of it as a group. I think that's very, very sensible. I had experience of trainees who want to take a lead in reporting and sharing information and I've had other people who are not keen to do that who would like it to be done by somebody else and I respect both of those views. I am very keen that we don't lose the opportunity to learn from error and we don't lose the opportunity to learn from when mistakes happen so I think you need to think carefully about a mechanism in your departments to make sure that this does happen, institutional learning takes place and you work to avoiding it happening again because although an individual be involved As we know from all the the work James Reason's done on error, it's usually a balance between individual error and also some degree of system error as well. So there's always a degree of institutional learning that has to take place with these cases. And it's a good time to just make a a little shout out to uh, Adrian Plunkett, who's doing some fantastic work around reporting excellence as well, because I don't think that we are particularly good at doing and recognising that. So he's got a whole excellence reporting form on his website, reporting instances of care where things have gone really well. And we've done that uh, for a number of years in Verchester, looking at not just mortality and morbidity, but also looking at awesome and amazing. So changing the M&M to an A&A, or certainly getting a balance between the two, because you can also learn great things from uh, some fantastic thing that somebody's done. So that, I would argue, is one of the reasons why we started doing a lot more echo in the department, because we realised that there were a number of cases where echo was useful. We picked up some amazing diagnoses. Well, actually, you share that. More people getting involved in the use of echo, more point-of-care ultrasound, in the ed so that can drive learning as well and natalie the the one thing i think did we talk about we talked about this issue of praise and criticism about the the extremes and i did say that if you just do 50 50 it's going to feel more like more negative than positive because people tend to dwell on the negative rather than on the positive and so simon 
just to go back to something that you brought up earlier on, you started talking about this concept of balancing out the the positive feedback with the negative. And I think you've talked in the past about it being a three to one ratio, three times as much positive to one negative bit of feedback. And you've talked as well about Greg Henry from the States talking about 10 to one because everything's bigger in America. They give much more positive feedback. We've talked about it feeling a bit more like 50-50. How can we make a change to to move things in a more positive direction to get that balance a bit a bit better a couple of things one is it's about your organizational culture so do you naturally do this you can ask other people if you think they think you're the sort of person who gives positive feedback i think there's great strength in being positive about normality so when you're we've talked about this in some of the other lectures that would kind of come out from smack but if you want to improve people's performance, don't always operate at the extremes. Go for normality, get people to talk through what they do, explain their thinking, explain their reasoning, not just whether they got the good outcome, but whether their decisions were good. Those, those things are quite different. And I think there's just a cognitive check that if you have given somebody some negative feedback or you've had to pull them up on some of their care, then just go back and think, well, actually, over the period of today, how does that balance out for me today? Do I need to go and look at some other things and give some positive feedback and some more positive reassurance? And even when you have a single case where things haven't gone terribly well, there's usually some positives within there as well that you can talk about. So I think you need to cognitively manage this. If you're not the sort of naturally fabulous, awesome, wonderful, lovey, cuddly person in the ED. If you're not that person, you have to manage it. If you are that person, gosh, you'd be so irritating. And the final question that I have for you, Simon, is, is this just for trainees? Oh, no. And it's interesting, I think, as you become a consultant, as a trainee, to some extent, you have a degree of protection and you have a system which looks after you. And I think at consultant level, that doesn't always exist. I think you're much more exposed as a consultant, partly because your standard of care, which you're expected to deliver, is higher. And so it feels like a bigger fall if something doesn't go well. But also, you may well hear about it for the first time when an email appears on your desk. There's few people who are out there trying to protect you from what's happened so the first thing you may know about it is something comes up in your email saying there is a medical legal claim against your um, practice from three years ago and it's the same range of emotions it's the same feeling as being pulled off the shop floor it's difficult i think time makes you a little bit more resilient with that but you have to recognize it's painful and Again, what's the culture in your department? Who are your friends? Who are those people who you can go and have an honest conversation with? You need somebody like that. You need somebody who you can just go and chew it over, give the case to them and say, well, look, you know, what do you think? How did this go? And that can be painful. I've seen people damaged by not sharing, by hiding it, by refusing to discuss it. I don't think that's a healthy thing to do. I think it's important that we, we do look after our colleagues. And I suppose as clinical director, you'll be aware of these. You just need to keep an eye on people. And I would say that that's a really important factor to take into account when you're choosing the department that you're going to be a consultant in. Are there people in that department that you can have these kind of conversations with? It's great to work somewhere where you're getting all the all the major trauma and you've got loads of specialties available and you've got all the latest high tech equipment. But actually, what I think really matters to me is the people who are working there. Who are my consultant colleagues? What's the culture of the department in terms of looking after one another and working together as a team? Because that ultimately is going to get you through the bad days and the bad times much more than having the latest ultrasound scanner is going to get you through the, the good days. Nobody should be cognizant of the fact that Natalie's just left my department and gone somewhere else. I'm sure that's not relevant to this answer, is it? No, not at all. Although no. I, I, I'm very appreciative of my colleagues in both the current department and uh, the department that I was in previously. And I'm not, I'm not fixed where I am. I've got places to go yet. 
that's an excellent answer. So, I think there's a couple of things we could summarise on. First would be, it's inevitable. Things don't always go well in the ED. So these conversations are not going to go away. And in some way, shape or form, everybody in emergency medicine is going to be involved in them at some point. I think we can make them a lot easier if we have a culture of regular feedback. And I particularly like this idea that you should have time that the trainees must book into your diary so they meet you in a non-clinical setting on a regular basis. And it's a fantastic opportunity to talk about good, bad and average cases. It's the way forward. So feedback and performance analysis becomes a regularity. The bad news, it's bad news. And as the other podcast by Liz and Ian says, you can't sugarcoat it. It's still bad news and you have to recognise that it will be perceived as such and understand what that will do to people. And as a good trainer or as a good colleague, as a good friend, you can help people through that process. We also talked about how error is a great system for learning. And it's not just for the individuals. You've got to find a mechanism to share it with other people so your institution learns. And finally, we talked about trainees in this podcast, but you know what? This is going to be there for the rest of your career. And not just in emergency medicine, any speciality, this sort of thing happens. So learn about it. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to your friends. And should you be involved in one of these conversations, please do your best. It's a tough time for a lot of people. And on that note, I'm going to go and uh, get ready to go to work and deliver some excellent care, I hope. And I'm going to go to work later and deliver some excellent care, too. So thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you soon on the St. Emily's podcast. Bye for now.